Galatians 2.20. It's a favorite text of most of you. And this is a favorite sermon of mine. And I've had help from it from Don McLeod. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Now what this text is doing is answering one of the most important questions that faces the Christian church today. And it is the question, what is a Christian? As you consider your own spiritual condition, where you are in relationship to God. Whether you are in a state of salvation or not. You must know what this question means. In some minimal way, what is a Christian? As you contemplate your relationship with other professing Christians, other children of God all over the world, you know, we are called upon to love them and deem them better than ourselves, to consider them to be our brothers. Well, we can only do that again if we know what to look for. What is a Christian? It faces us as we hear Sunday morning and Sunday night, my incessant gospel appeals to you. As I address you and urge every one of you to become real Christians, what am I urging you to become? We can only repent. We can only believe if we know what we are turning from and whom we are believing in. And so at those levels, and there are many more, scores more, I suppose, we face this great challenge tonight. What is a Christian? How can I know if I'm a Christian? How can I know if other people are Christians? How can I respond to the plea I hear from the pulpit to become a real Christian? I must have some definition of what a Christian actually is. And that's why I've turned to these great words then of the Apostle Paul. Because they bring together in a very wonderful, compact way the essential elements of such a definition. They tell us through Paul's self-understanding. They tell us what he thought a Christian actually was from his own, his own understanding. So I want to extract from uh, Paul's great statement, I want to extract four or five definitions that go to make up then this, this big picture of what a Christian really is. Firstly, he tells us that a Christian is a human being. Now, I suppose that sounds strange, and yet I think that many who ponder taking this great step of a, a break with a family that no one is a Christian in the family or a boy or a girl in school and there's nobody else in your class who goes to church certainly on a Sunday night and to become disciples followers of Jesus Christ that uh, you attempted to think that this will make you Something less than a human being. You're afraid of terms like born again. 
you're afraid of a, a word like converted. It's a, a fearful word for you, and I can understand that. You're afraid that you are going to destroy some things that really have gone to make up the kind of person you are. Things that are important to you. And I would agree with you that we do meet some Christians who give the impression of great artificiality. They give the impression that they are a little less than human in their own personal lives. And that's why I'm intrigued what the Apostle Paul says here. The life I live in the flesh, he says. The life I live in the body. That the conversion to Jesus Christ that happened to him on the Damascus road has not overridden the great fact that he was still living in, in the body. That he had the same color skin and color eyes and hair and bone structure and his center of gravity was a certain place in, in his life. He'd been through momentous experiences. He'd been through great trauma. And yet he could say, um, I live, yet no longer I no longer ego. I've been through such trauma. And there was a divide in the Apostle's life between pre-Damascus Road, pre-conversion, and post-conversion. There was a chasm. And Paul is saying that in spite of that momentous change, despite its revolutionary consequences, that he was still living in the body, in the flesh. He hadn't ceased to be human. He hadn't ceased to be earthed in ordinary human circumstances and conditions. He was still living a life in the flesh, in this world, and that he carried with him so much basic humanity. And I think that that is just enormously important and, and encouraging and helpful. It means, for example, he carried with him his own molecular structure. He carried with him his own temperament, his own personhood, his own individuality. His personality hadn't somehow shrunk when he became a Christian. It hadn't been merged into some great, grey, vague, standardised, computerised religiosity. He hadn't lost his own temperament. You finding him telling us, for example that there were times when he was pressed down beyond measure. He wasn't living on some great artificial high, bouncing out of bed and saying, praise the Lord, every morning, and then through the day, on some ecstasy, bubbling and effervescing in some ersatz kind of joy. There were days when he, it was not a good day. There were days when he was, Despairing even of life, he tells us. His temperament hadn't been overridden so as to destroy that side of his human personality. Again, he tells us, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He tells the church at Philippi that it wasn't then his, his contentment with the providences that came and uh, brought him low and troubled him, that uh, it 
His contentment in response to them wasn't a matter of psychology or personality. After his conversion, he still found it tough to be contented. There's much evidence that shows us that he was a bundle of energy. He found it difficult to be restful and patient. I'm sure that uh, temperamentally, as he'd been before his conversion, he'd been an irritable man. But he'd learned. He'd come to handle his temperament. He'd come to manage being discontented. He'd come to manage and control his uh, impatience. To learn to mortify his irritability. And to master it by the grace of Jesus Christ. It wasn't destroyed in a single moment. It survived his conversion. And he had learned it. He would learned it was difficult. But he went to God again and again. Sorry about today, Lord. Sorry now. Oh, help me now. Help me when I'm going to meet these people. And there, there are these opponents and so on. And so we find Paul lived the Christian life with a temperament that he had. And then we find also that the Apostle Paul had human affections. Remember that marvelous passage in Romans where he speaks of his love for his own people, his affection for his kinsmen according to the flesh. I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. His conversion hadn't put an end. It hadn't terminated, extinguished, annihilated his Jewishness. Still a Jew. Still rooted in the culture and attitudes of his own people. When he went to a a new community, he said, uh, can you tell me where the, the local synagogue is? And there uh, he homed in on that and he talked to the people there straight away. There was a driving love he had for his own people. My friends, that must be essential for all of us too. That we don't lose our ethnic or national characteristics. When, when we become Christians, we become rooted in the soil which, which we were nurtured, the rock from which we were hewn. Oh, these things are precious to us and increasingly precious as the, as the years go by. And isn't it true also that we carry about with us many of our native, our natural weaknesses? Paul wasn't suddenly given on the Damascus Road a whole new range of talents, of abilities. He didn't find all his inadequacies suddenly all plucked out and a whole new compact of talents given. He found it in a way that I found, find to be immeasurably comforting that even after his conversion men could look at him, and they could say to one another, his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. He wasn't an orator, he wasn't like Peter, who could grasp 
thousands of men, their attention, and you could hear a pin drop as they listened to him. He didn't have a, a noble, overwhelming presence. You know, in a cowboy film, John Wayne will walk into a saloon and everyone suddenly will hold the glass and they'll look around to see what presence has come. Ball could slip into a room and no one could know that he had joined them in those areas. He was born weak and he remained weak. And all of us, we come to Jesus Christ not only with our strengths, but we come to Jesus Christ with our weaknesses too. And oh, we feel those weaknesses, don't we? And are so cross with ourselves so often. And we come then, we come to a point in our lives when we admire the grace of God in allowing those weaknesses to remain. And learning so much from our weaknesses. It makes us go to God and say, God, here we are. I'm not up to this. You must help me. You must be with me. I can't cope by myself. We know that Paul found his weaknesses to be almost intolerable burden when he was given a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times most earnestly that that thorn in the flesh should be removed. He went to God and longed for it. How can I cope? I can do so much better. I'll do so much more evangelism and letter writing and preaching and traveling if only you can take this thorn in the flesh from me. He prayed sessions of prayer before God. God taught him a great lesson. He taught him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect when people are weak. Because when they're weak, they come to God and they say to God, God, you've got to help me. I can't do these things by myself. You've got to be with me. How much do we owe to our weaknesses? These things that keep us depending on God. Looking to God for strength from God and help from God. So, I'm saying to you, Paul remained then a human being. He had a human being's temperament, a human being's affections and interests, and a human being's weaknesses. And then I'm sure he also had a human being's interests. He writes to Timothy, he says, bring the books. He was a bookman, you see. Bring the books and, and the parchments. And it's cold here. Bring a blanket. The thing is this, that when you become a Christian, it is not that after that time, nothing else matters to you but religion. If you go through the books of the Bible, if you start to read them, you'll find that the author of Job, and you will find that the author of Ecclesiastes. And you will find Moses and Isaiah and the psalmists are, are fascinated by everything in God's creation. They're interested in music. They're interested in mining. They're interested in beauty. They're interested in agriculture and commerce. They're, they're even interested in matters military. 
because they had this great vision of God's creation and the marvelous gifts that God so lavishly gives to people in his creation. Um, Here's Lydia, and she is uh, um, an entrepreneur, and she's uh, a trader in purple, and she has links then in purple dyes and purple materials, and she prospers, and God encourages her and saves her. They were men and women involved in the world of their day, and they were alert to its needs. And sometimes I'm sure they were thrilled by its achievements. One of the great facts about John Calvin is that he was one of the outstanding humanists of his age. A humanist uh, then in Reformation times was a man who was um, an expert in the classical languages. He was a great classical scholar, so was John Wesley. You know John Wesley, then, how um, he taught Greek in Oxford. And there's J. Gresham Machen, and J. Gresham Machen loved mountain climbing. There's a picture of him in, um, just after the First World War, and he's climbed the Matterhorn, and he's got the, the stranger's kit on to keep himself warm. As uh, he goes there, he's written a lovely little essay, Mountains and Why We Love Them. Professor Ray Dillard was the professor of Old Testament at Westminster. Oh, he loved working with wood. He made glowing cabinets. And then when John Murray would uh, speak to us at the Leicester Conference, uh, we would say to him, Ah, well, the date next year is April the 3rd, to the seventh. Uh, can you come, Mr. Murray? And he would look in and he would bring out his diary and he would check. And He didn't want it to clash with lambing time because he was born in a, at the side of Loch Ney, there near Bonner Bridge and he had sheep. Bibi Warfield, you know, was a judge of shorthorn cattle and uh, because he was a Kentucky man um, he he loved horses. And uh, in that book, the bibliography of all Warfield's writings, the editor of it says, well, I didn't put all his articles on shorthorn cattle. There's a well-known story of a man who was asked what his brothers did. And he said, I've got two brothers. One is a minister and the other is a human being. <laughs> And it's that tension, it's that dichotomy that I'm trying to focus on. Some of you are so afraid if you become a, a Christian, you, you won't be, you won't be a, a regular boy, a regular girl. You'll be awkward. It'll, you will do uncharacteristic things that you, you'll just be forced to do against your will and your better judgment. And it, it doesn't mean that at all. You, you must... You must bring to God all your hobbies. You must bring to the Lord all your interests. You, you must give them to him. And then he'll do a wonderful thing for you. He'll give them back to you. But he'll give them back to you as your servants. Not as your Lord. Um, if you love singing and music and uh, uh, clothes and bicycles, and sport. 
you, you, you give all those things to the Lord. And the Lord will deliver you from them being your master and you being the slave of any of them. A Christian is a human being. That's my, my first point. And my second point is that a Christian is someone who has the most exalted view of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think of Christ? That's the most fundamental question when uh, People come to us and say that they've become Christians. And then we, we say to them, who is Jesus Christ? Say, well, he's the son of God and my savior and my brother, my brother. So a Christian is someone who has the maximal possible view of Christ. The grandest possible, the greatest possible view of Christ. The most stupendous view of Christ. And so Paul says here, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's who he was. That's what Paul saw him as. God the Son. Now in many ways it's a remarkable statement because... It wasn't a decade before he wrote this letter to the Galatians when he had a very different estimation of Jesus Christ. That he knew him according to the flesh. That he, he knew him um, like we get to know people. Oh, where are you from? And uh, what school did you go to? What job are you doing? Did you go to college? And so on. What income? Do they have? The apostle looked at the teaching of Jesus and especially the fate that befell him. And he learned that this man had been crucified. And he came to the obvious conclusion then he was a bad man. He was a wretched man. He was an evil man. To have ended his life in that way and God did nothing to protect him. He was a blasphemer. He was an imposter. And being the sort of man Paul was then, when he had certain beliefs then, well, um, he must stop the spread of this horrible heresy that would disturb many, many people, and he would wipe it out. He would strangle the infant church in its crib. And then, on the Damascus Road, God intervened. And God gave this man, the Saul of Tarsus, not a feeling, not an emotion, not some marvelous experience, not some great gifts, not great darkness alone. But God gave him a whole new insight into Jesus of Nazareth. He transformed his ideas and beliefs about the Nazarene. God printed indelibly on his mind and his conscience a few elementary momentous convictions about Jesus of Nazareth. And it was that intellectual revolution that turned this man 
to become a follower of Christ. God had persuaded him that Jesus was his son. Now I believe that there's nothing more foundational about a Christian than that fact. The ascent in our minds to this belief that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. So I say, this is the first question we ask, what, what do you think of Christ? What do you think of Jesus? And on the basis of that, the New Testament church baptized. I believe he's the Son of God and my Savior. And that's the great affirmation the early church made. They had a banner, as it were. And they said on that banner, we have a great high priest. The New Testament church wasn't testifying to experiences that they had. It was witnessing to the glory of Jesus Christ. When men came to John the Baptist, they wanted John the Baptist to speak to them about John the Baptist. But John the Baptist wouldn't speak to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, and he must increase. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. And his, his motion and his momentum was away from himself, that people could be interested in Jesus. And it's like that in the Christian church. There's a lamb in the, in the midst of the throne. A Christian is a man who makes stupendous claims about the Savior. I believe in the pre-existence of Christ. I believe he's always been. I believe he was there in the beginning. I believe he never came into being. I believe that he is the maker of heaven and earth. I believe that he designed every leaf, that he planned the trajectory of every comet and, and meteor and asteroid. I believe that he upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. That every chemical bond and every physical bond in the cosmos was fashioned and maintained by the Lord of glory. I believe that our mathematics, as applied to this universe, are our attempt at this time to describe in these books the thought patterns of the Son of God. I believe one day he will come again. I believe that he will then pull apart the universe molecule by molecule and subatomic particle by subatomic particle and that he will put it all together again and it will be redolent with his glory, a new heavens and a new earth. I believe that one day you and I, all of us here, will have to face him. All of us are going to meet him. All of us are going to give an account to him of how we've lived and how we've spent our life and what we've done in this world. And I believe we will receive from him our destinies. I believe that when we meet him, we're meeting absolute and ultimate and final reality. I believe that he is God, that he's the only God there is, that in him is all the fullness of God, the whole form of God, the whole glory of God is to be found 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. A Christian may be more than that. But a Christian is not less than that. I believe in the greatness of Jesus. In the unique greatness of Jesus. In the incomparable grandeur of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord. Oh, wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of, of glory. But let me go on. This man uh, whom Paul is describing here through his own self-consciousness not only believes, he does believe, but he does more than believe. This man, we're told, thirdly, he lives by that faith. He applies his beliefs about Jesus Christ uh, and he applies them to every aspect of his daily life. He lives by faith in the Son of God. His theology then isn't simply stowed away in his brain. His theology is applied in all the interfaces of our human existence. Paul's whole life was dominated and mastered and controlled by the mighty fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So what does that mean? Well, it means he worshipped him. He fell at his feet as dead. And I put it to you, there's nothing more important about Christians than that they worship Jesus. That their belief is transformed into action and that part of it is a prostration, a self-abasement, a falling at his feet, a humility, a tender, holy regard for him as we speak as we live they call on the name of the Lord they pray to the holy child Jesus they make melody in their hearts to him they sing great hymns to him I believe that uh, all of New Testament worship was Christ centered it was words and praise and song that was focused on him. Join all the glorious names of wisdom, love and power that mortals ever knew that angels ever bore. All are too mean to speak his worth. Too mean to set my Savior forth. That's what they said. And to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's what they sing in heaven. Glory and power and dominion are his alone. They were singing. They were living their faith. When they were thrown into the arena and the gates were opened and the hungry animals poured out, they sang together. They lived their faith in prayer. They lived their faith in adoration. They lived in their faith in making Jesus Christ Lord of every part of their lives all their talents and their strength and their assets and their time and their behavior their bodies their lifestyles how they spent their money how they spent their weekends what they did on Sundays what they did on Saturdays what they watched on the world wide web their regrets their very sorrows they were all Christ dominated he was their Lord they were his slaves. He was their maker. They, they were his property. 
They didn't belong to themselves. They lived by trusting in Jesus Christ. And as they looked at life with the problems that we're not promised we will be exempt from and lived that life, they lived it by faith in Christ. It kept them optimistic. It kept them sane. They had a great persuasion. All the things that they met would work together for their good. They were convinced. They were taught it. And they experienced it. Because Christ was on the throne. The Lamb of God was in control. He was opening the books. And when times of stress came and times of sorrow and uh, times of disappointment and pain and persecution, they knew, well, God will work this for our good too. Because he loved them in Christ. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in, in Jesus Christ. So they didn't confine their faith to six to a quarter past seven on a Sunday. They didn't confine it to that. They didn't confine it then to when they read the Bible at the family worship. But uh, their faith was operating in the most fruitful of dynamics. It was in all the details of domestic life. It's when they met their neighbor. It was they were driving their car. It was uh, as they faced various temptations and, and trials and struggles. They were living, living their faith. And wherever God has placed you, and wherever you are in your earthly pilgrimage, uh, this August in uh, 2015, uh, you've got to work out your relationship with the Lord and see everything in regard that relationship. What would Jesus have me do? How can I find strength to honor and glorify Jesus now in doing this? And so we take our faith with us onto the rugby field and the football field and when we relax in the evening and watch television and into the, the boats on Cardigan Bay and into the factory and into the office and into schools and into technology. You live. You live by trusting in the Lord. It's applied there at the point of stress, at the point of obligation, in our own existence. We express our faith in worship. We express our faith in self-consecration. We express it, our faith in the patience that we show when one trouble seems to follow another trouble into our life. And we live our faith in the confession we make of being a Christian. In our lack of shame. In saying we're following the Lord Jesus. God has given a banner to those who fear him. A great fact. And so we, we, we raise the banner. We pull the rope and up the banner goes. And we stand under it. It says, as for me and, and my house... We will serve the Lord. God wants us to turn our convictions into a confession. He wants us to publicize that we are Christians. He wants us to articulate. He wants us to defend. 
He wants us to promote the reality that we are believers. He wants uh, Arborusta to sing in perfect harmony. And he gives the note. And he gives the song sheet. And he gives the words. One name. One way. One truth. One life. So that men, all men, know that there's a living God. And he has a son. And this son is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do, Do you worship him? Do you submit all you have to him? Do you trust him? At times of anguish, do you confess his name? You profess? Yeah, I'm not much, but yeah, I'm one of those. <laughs> I'm a believer. At every God opportunity, we live uh, by our faith. And then fourthly, then, a Christian is someone who, is, who possesses an assurance that God loves him. He knows he's a Christian. He knows he's saved. He says here, the Son of God, who loved me, me, and gave himself for me. And that's the voice of normal, normative, New Testament Christianity. Uh, People really knew that God loved them. And that's the note, isn't it? Old Testament and New Testament. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinks upon me. We know we have passed from death to life. I am persuaded that nothing shall separate me from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me in that day. I have a great desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better. You know, those phrases from the letters and from the Old Testament, it is the language of deep, unshakable assurance. And that's normative New Testament language. And that's what God wants us all to have, for us to sing together. We are marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We are marching. To the beautiful city of God. That's where we're going. Our God in Zion is the end of the journey. Now, you'd have great pity and concern, especially if you were a school teacher and if a little boy wasn't doing well in school. And when you spoke to him or to her. Um, either of them said to you, I, I, I don't know if mummy loves me. You could hardly believe your ears and you'd want to know more. You, you wouldn't think, well, this child is failing at some educational, logical level. But what's wrong with this boy's mother or this boy's father that they haven't given to this little child (laughs) a a hug a a tenderness an assurance that that this boy is loved how how does this assurance come to us well I, I want to tell you there's a book that God gives us, the Bible. 
And there are two things that are very clear in this book. And the first thing in this book is that God tells us what a Christian believes. That he believes that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And these three are, are one God. He tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he tells us that man fell into sin, rebelled against God. And he tells us that God set up all the engineering of redemption. And he said that he would send uh, someone into the world who would crush the old serpent's head who caused all this pain. He sent his son into the world. And he willingly came. The father and the son in total harmony about what needed to be done in order to redeem us. And he lived the righteous life that we failed to live and he died an atoning death. He became the Lamb of God and he took away our guilt and our blame. He rose on the third day and he lives now and he lives at the right hand of God. And he comes and he meets like tonight where we gather in his name and, uh, and he has dealings with us and he strengthens faith and he convicts and he saves and he builds us up and that's what the Lord does. And one day he's coming again and he's uh, going to gather us to himself. Do you believe that? And many of you say, yes, I, I believe all you've said. Well, that's what a Christian believes. And then this Bible also, it tells us how a Christian should live. What we should do with our lives day by day. It gives us the Ten Commandments. Only him as God. No idols that we worship. We don't take his name in vain. We, we keep a day special. Every week. We say I'm not worshipping my job. And we give the, the day to him. And we honour our dear parents. And we don't do acts of violence. Or sexual sin. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't covet. We're content with what God gives us. That's we don't do any of those things perfectly, but we would do them perfectly. We're poor in spirit, and we mourn, and we're meek, and we hunger for righteousness, and we are pure in our hearts. We love our enemies. We try to overcome their enmity against us with good. If they're hungry, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them to drink. That's how we'd seek to live. And in the church we think everyone's so much better than we are. And we help and we serve and we try to carry their burdens. Um, is that your ambition and your longing? You, you don't do any of those things perfectly, but you would. That, that's how a, a Christian lives. And we receive assurance from the Bible in the way the Bible tells us then what we're to believe and how we're to live. And by obedience and understanding we strengthen the inner witness of the Holy Spirit to our spirits. That we are the children of God. And God nurtures it. And God strengthens it. It's 
God loves us unconditionally. As God has seen the past. He's looked through the file. He's seen us at the things we are most ashamed of in our lives. And God loves us with a love that will never let us go. He's so much in love with us. He's determined to take us to heaven and change us. And we're going to live in heaven with him forever. And nothing's going to frustrate that commitment God has made. But he'll share eternity with us. A Christian feels loved with an unqualified, an absolute, and invincible sense. And with a growing affection. We love him because he first loved us. There's so much in the world that's intimidating and cold and overwhelming. There are so many neuroses and phobias and so much apparent insecurity. But the most majestic reality of all is that though we are so inconsistent, such twerps, such weaklings, so little to offer to God, that he loves us. God loves us. I'm not saying that the universe is on our side or the cosmos is on our side or that history is on our side. I'm saying God. God is on our side. God is our refuge and God is our strength. The Son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. What was the meaning of Calvary? Well, I was the meaning of Calvary. It was his love for me. He'd made up his mind to save me by making full and absolute and infinite provision in the coming of Jesus into the world. It was love for me that made him carry the cross and made him set his face, determined to go to Jerusalem there to lay down his life for us. And uh, it's one of the great glories of the gospel that we can promise absolution. For all your sins, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. That the slate is wiped absolutely clean. That God becomes your father and loves you. And works everything for your good and gives you strength for every task. I think that as the century progresses and as we're moving into um, a greater intolerant hostility towards true Christianity that uh, it's more and more important for us to to know Jesus is our Lord and and Savior. This assurance in vaster qualities. Right, one more point and I'm through. Two minutes now. A Christian is someone who is practically omnipotent. Okay, practically omnipotent. Christ, he says in our text, lives in me. Isn't that magnificent? We sometimes think of the the pressures that are before us in the week to come. The mountains we have to climb. The rivers we have to fort. The burdens we have to bear. How can can I manage? You say. "I, I can't manage. And then you come back to this great fact. Christ lives in me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he says. Christ lives in every one of his children. 
God's Spirit inhabits the body of every Christian. We have illimitable access to an indwelling Savior. He's made us his temple. God's made vast resources over to us. I believe you can climb any mountain. I believe you can face any loss, any loneliness. I believe you can bear any load. I believe you can endure any pressure. You can overcome any temptation. You can bear any pressure. Because Jesus Christ lives in you. Whatever God gives us, whatever God calls us to, we can do it. Because it's not just me. It is not old ego. It is Christ then living in us. So, there we are. Um, by Paul's criteria here now in this, uh, this great verse, Galatians 2.20, am I a Christian? Am I living an authentic human life, disciplined by the belief that Jesus Christ is God the Son, enjoying a mighty assurance that God loves me, having this access then to the indwelling Savior? Am I that? Well, then, how am I relating to other Christians in this congregation? To the pastor, to the officers, to those who have to take tough decisions. How am I relating to other Christians in Aberystwyth? Other Christians in Wales and all over the world? Do I support them? Do I pray for them? Does my heart bleed for what I'm seeing is happening in Syria and Pakistan and North Korea? To my brothers? Uh, my brother is somebody who believes in the incomparable glory of Jesus Christ. By the new birth, he's become um, a temple of the Spirit of God. I, I won't always say all you believe is right. I won't say that. And all you do and the decisions you make are good decisions. I won't turn a blind eye to all your misdemeanors. But I love you. I'll tell you, you did wrong. That's not good. It's not right. I'll tell you that. I may rebuke you because I love you. Well then, will you become such a Christian? Everybody here, this distinguished congregation tonight, no. Will you become a follower of Jesus Christ? From now on, you're not going to follow self, but from now on, you're going to follow him. The one who's loved you and helped you and given you every good and wonderful and perfect Grand blessing, your dear wife, your dear husband, mum and dad, health and a mind, and has kept you until now. You see, when Paul thought that Christianity was a law of hokum and rubbish, then he sought to destroy it, to put it in the public incinerator and wipe out every trace of it. He hounded it, but when God changed his mind, and when God showed him that Christ was his own son, he turned his back on all that. And he followed. He 
he followed Jesus. He was being consistent. Well, what I find alarming is people who profess that they are Christians, and yet they are so pathetic in following Jesus. So inconsistent, so muddled and not longing for light and straightening themselves out. To those of us who spent dark years looking for certainty, we find it difficult to sympathize with those who are certain, oh yes, I'm a Christian, and uh, are not committed to it. I want you believing in my Savior. I want you living for my Savior. I want your knees bowed and your tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you falling at his feet as if you were dead. I want you to surrender your life to him. And that means that the Holy Spirit takes the word that you've heard and he impacts your mind and your conscience and your will and your affections so that you bow to him. And that you make him your Lord. And you follow him and serve him as your Lord from this time onwards. No other Lord except Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did when he saw the truth. He yielded to that truth. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. He lived out what he believed. God grant that for everybody here tonight. Everybody.